and began a study on it. We will continue studying Mark's gospel um, over the next several weeks as we go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 21, is where we're going to begin reading this morning. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and uh, we'll make sure that you get a Bible. We want you to read the text with us, and uh, we're going to finish the chapter this morning. And uh, so we want to make sure that you have the Word of God that is in your hand. Mark chapter 1. In verse 21, as you make your way there, and let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would just right now, uh, just as we have just been drawn close to you through this wonderful worship, and what uh, a marvelous privilege and opportunity and, and time that we've had with you this morning in worship. And Lord, just being able to leave all the, the world stuff out there and come into this sanctuary that has been dedicated to you and, Lord, your people, knowing that you're here in our midst, a sanctuary, not only as a building, but, Lord, in our hearts, that we can come and just, Lord, focus on you. And, Lord, we desire right now to feast on your word. And, Lord, I'm so thankful that we have this marvelous place here that we can gather together as your people. And, Lord, to just be encouraged and blessed and and Lord, now be taught to be refreshed in you, and Lord, to learn of you. We pray that we would find rest in our souls this morning as we come and we just look at Jesus. And that's our desire this morning. We wish to see Jesus. And so, Lord, bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As most of you know that Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospel narratives that we have in the scriptures, 16 chapters, and the other three gospels are, of course, longer. And as we opened up Mark's gospel, we saw that he doesn't give the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. There's no genealogy spoken of of Jesus there in Mark's gospel. There's no events described to us concerning the childhood days of Jesus Christ. But we see that Mark, in giving us the good news, that is, as he, begin, he begins the gospel by saying that the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is Mark that right away goes into the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who is crying out there in the wilderness, prepare the way of the one who is coming, Jesus Christ, baptizing at the Jordan. And then we see that Jesus would come to the Jordan where he was baptized, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And we heard the voice of the Father saying to him, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then there was only a short, brief mention in verses 12 and 13 of Satan who would tempt Jesus as the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And Mark, he does not describe those temptations. That is left to Matthew and to Luke as those narratives would give us the temptations of, of, of Satan towards Jesus. And so we see that Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. That's where Mark really begins to tell us about Jesus and the ministry of Jesus right away. And we left off last time seeing Jesus in that area of Galilee calling disciples to himself. Now one of the things that will help us as you go through the Gospels that there are different geographical regions that are described to us in the gospel narratives. And at this time in Israel, Israel was divided up into three regions. The northern part of the country was the Galilee region. That's where Jesus spent most 
of his earthly ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Matter of fact, there's a picture as you get your water or you get your tea in a coffee shop that, that looks at uh, from the vantage point in the middle of the Sea of Galilee northward, and you're looking at uh, the shores where Capernaum was, where the Mount of Beatitudes. That's where 80% of the gospel takes place, is in that little area on kind of the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus spent most of his time, his earthly ministry there in that area. Then in the middle of the country was what was called Samaria, and in the southern region of Israel was called Judea, and that's where Jerusalem was, that's where the temple was, that's where the people would gather together when they came for the major feast that they would celebrate. And so that's where, of course, our Lord would be crucified. So here is Jesus as he begins his ministry, his public ministry. He's up in the Galilee region calling Simon, as we know him as Peter, and Andrew his brother, another set of brothers, James and John. And they are fishermen. And immediately as Jesus calls them to follow after him, they would leave their nets and follow the Lord. We know that from the Gospel of John, that as we see Jesus calling those disciples to himself, that Jesus actually had met them down in Judea earlier. So that wasn't the first encounter that we read in Mark chapter 1 of Jesus with those disciples, but it is the story of their official call to continual discipleship. And as Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, Jesus is saying that I will be responsible for doing that work in you, for making you fishers of men. You are to follow after me. And these guys, they're Galilean fishermen, and they were untutored, unlearned. They were not the religious elite of the nation. They were not the ones that came from you know, the schools of learning. They were not scholars. They were just simple individuals that made a living on the Sea of Galilee. And of course, the other disciples were ones that were simple men, ordinary men that God would use in being his disciple and then eventually taking the gospel message all throughout the world. And so here is Jesus calling these, these ordinary men to, to service. And he says, I'll make you fishers of men. And eventually these guys and all the disciples would learn to walk in a way where they would rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I read how Jesus called these guys to follow him, and he would indeed make them fishers of men, as we know from the book of Acts, as they would go out, and knowing that Jesus assumes the responsibility, that greatly encourages me, and I hope it does to you this morning as well. Because when he calls you, when he calls me for ministry, for service, to do any task, to, to live a life after him, the Lord assumes the responsibility to see us through if we just yield to him and follow after him. Matter of fact, it would be Paul that would write to the church at Philippi in chapter 1, verse 6 of that epistle, that being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, he's begun that good work in us, hasn't he? And he will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. And I can rest in that. Lord, you've begun the good work in me, and I can be confident that you're going to finish that work that you have for me. And so here is the Lord calling these guys to ministry. And let's pick up our text at verse 21. And then they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So the scribes, when they were teaching the people, 
that sect of religious leaders there in the nation, they would oftentimes speak from authority. In other words, they would quote from Rabbi so-and-so in their teachings. But Jesus, we are told in the Gospels over and over again that he spoke with authority. He would say, truly I say to you. And isn't that a phrase that we see oftentimes, not only in Mark's Gospel we will see, but all four of the Gospel narratives. Jesus says, I say to you, and he would declare truth. Jesus here, as we read in Mark chapter 1, would go into the synagogue. It's there in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a small village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was some, a city that ended up being Jesus' earthly headquarters, if you would. And Jesus spent more time in Capernaum than any other place on earth, including Jerusalem. Matter of fact, he spent very little time in the city of Jerusalem. And so there is Jesus. He's in Capernaum there in the synagogue. Now, there we need to understand something, that the synagogues being spoken of here in uh, Capernaum is not the same as the temple. Now, the temple was in Jerusalem down south where they would do the sacrifices, where the priests would serve, where the people, as I mentioned to you, would come and gather there for the major feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, the, the Feast of Passover. And so all the Jews from all over the known world would come into the city of Jerusalem during those feasts. And they would come to the temple and they would make their sacrifices there at that temple that stood in the holy city of Jerusalem. But the synagogue was something different. The synagogues were all over the country of Israel. Matter of fact, they were all over Asia Minor. And whenever there was a city where there was 10 Jewish males and, and they lived in that city or that village or that area, a, a synagogue would be started. And usually it would be a very small building. It was a place of study, no sacrifice. Again, that was only at the temple in Jerusalem. And the synagogue was small, uh, a small little study center where there would be prayer and the study of the scriptures. And that practice of the synagogue started when the children of Israel, or that is the people of Judah, went into exile in Babylon. And of course, we talked about the Babylonian captivity quite extensively in our recent study of Daniel that we just finished up a couple weeks ago. And you see, when they went into captivity in Babylon, they no longer had access to the temple. Matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Solomon's temple. So for those 70 years, what they did is they began to meet together in and they set up that system of, of worship and gathering together known as the synagogue. And they would bring that practice back when they came back under Ezra, Nehemiah, and the others. And they would continue with meeting in the synagogues. And remember that when it was Ezra and Nehemiah that did come back to Judah and Jerusalem, where they would eventually rebuild the temple and rebuild the city, a lot of the Jews stayed back in, Cap in the area of Babylon. They they weren't in captivity, but they chose to stay there in Babylon, in Persia. They would begin to disperse all over the known world. And so we know that they would set up this, this synagogue whenever, again, there was 10 Jewish males that were in a, a village or a city or in an area. And we know that the synagogues were overseen by laymen. They were not professional ministers, 
but by a council of elders. And one of those was the ruler or the presider. And whenever a rabbi or a teacher would come into the area, it was customary for the ruler of the synagogue to invite that teacher to come and speak on that Sabbath day. And that's why you read in the book of Acts that Paul, when he would go into a city as he traveled all throughout um, Asia Minor and up into that area of Greece, that when there was a synagogue there, he would go into the synagogue because he would be invited to speak. Paul being a teacher, a Pharisee, a Pharisee before his conversion. And Paul would take advantage of that invitation as he would go into the synagogues and he would preach Jesus Christ to them. You see that over and over again in the book of Acts on his missionary journeys. And usually what would happen is he would preach Jesus Christ to them. He would show them from the scriptures that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, that he fulfilled those prophecies, that they would get mad and they would reject him and they would run him out of the synagogue. Well, here, back to Mark chapter 1, Jesus is going into the synagogue in Capernaum. He's teaching with authority. And Mark says that those who heard him teach were absolutely amazed. They, they marveled. They, they marveled at his scope of knowledge, his insight to the scriptures, the wisdom of God that was coming from him. And they were particularly impressed with the authority in which he spoke. The words that he spoke were truth, and the people were amazed. His words had the ring of truth, acknowledged by all who heard him speak. And that's important for us to know, because Jesus made that important declaration in that upper room in John chapter 14, saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that means that we ought to measure every teaching by what Jesus has to say about the subject. And the longer that I walk with the Lord and read through the scriptures and read the things that Jesus said, I realize, and I know that you do as well, that what he is saying is truth. And it is God's wisdom. And it is true knowledge. And I know that I can stand firm on it and be strong by it as I walk in the things that Jesus says to me and the promises that he gives to me. I know that the words of Jesus are true. And what he has to say about living life and, and walking in wisdom, that I can experience that abundant life. And so here he goes into the synagogue and watch what happens, verse 23. And now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee, as we read there in verse 28. So there was a man there in the synagogue who was possessed by a demon. And notice that as you go through the Gospels, there's a lot that is spoken of in his ministry, particularly as he was up here in the Galilee region, of those who were possessed by demons, that he would cast those demons out. And, and there's a lot of mention of that. But know this, that Jesus never went looking for demons. Have you noticed that as you went through the Gospels? He never held deliverance meetings. He never taught deliverance seminars. Never. You don't see that. 
So he didn't go looking for the demons, but where Jesus is, the demons get restless and they expose themselves. And this demon recognizes the power of Jesus. He recognizes who he is, that you are the Holy One of God. And if you and I are doing our ministry even as Jesus, and what I mean by that is that as we are teaching and sharing the word, as we are sharing truth, as we are giving God's word, sharing of the Lord, demons are going to surface from time to time. They will make themselves known. They'll appear, oh, not necessarily tangibly as you see here, but you can kind of just discern their activities. But I don't think any of us really have to go demon hunting. And the reason that I mention that, because there are ministers and there are ministries out there that they will place this overemphasis on demons and Satan and demonology, and, and, and that's their main emphasis, some of the ministries. I know very well that demons are real. I know that there's a spiritual world out there. It's just as we discovered and talked about a little bit in Daniel's study, as Daniel was talking about the prince of Persia and Greece coming to fight against the angel that was bringing an answer to Daniel's prayer. And so we know it's real out there, and there's fallen angels, certainly. We're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. There's a spiritual war out there because Satan, he's a roaring lion, as Peter writes in his epistle, seeking to devour those, pounce on those as we are vulnerable he'll have opportunity to do that if we go into his territory we know that it is satan that throws those fiery darts at us it's very real he's a deceiver he's a murderer jesus called him he will try to pull you and i away from the things of god and the service of god he'll try to come against us but here's the thing my point this morning is that our emphasis needs to be on the work and the nature and person of jesus christ and what happens when we do that? Well, then the light is being manifested. And the forces of darkness start to get real nervous. And they will make themselves known, perhaps not so obvious as we see here in our text. But you and I, we will see their activities, their work. We'll perceive that the enemy is there trying to come against us or come against the body of Christ. And it shouldn't cause us to fear because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I do believe that demon possession is real, including the time in which we're living in, that people can be demonized, but not Christians, not those of us who have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us. But I also believe that we need to be careful not to have this overemphasis of, of demons and, and focusing on demons and always talking about demons. Certainly that they're around and they're real. And, and we shouldn't focus just solely and so much on dealing with devils and demons more than walking in the light. How is it that we overcome darkness? When Jim and I came this morning, Jim, Pastor Jim and I, we come to church very, very early in the morning and in the wintertime, such as what it is now, that when we come into the building, it's dark. And we walk in, we don't start yelling at the dark. We don't start rebuking the dark. We don't scream at the dark. We turn the light on. And I think that's the best way. That's the Jesus way. 
So Jesus goes into the synagogue and he begins teaching and sharing about the kingdom. And sure enough, there's this demonic disruption and Jesus deals with it very specifically. And when it says here that the people are all amazed, that's a very strong word. It's, it's a word describing that they were absolutely astonished. They had never seen this before. Listen, light and darkness cannot dwell together at the same time, at the same place. A container is either lit or it's going to be dark. Satan cannot dwell in you if Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has taken up residency in you. So again, Colossians 2 says that he has no direct authority over us. Oh, he'll come against us. He's the accuser of the brethren. He is very much a deceiver, certainly. He can even transform himself into an angel of light. But I don't have to worry about being possessed by the devil. Just walk in the light, and where there is light, John declares there can be no darkness. That's a fact. So you keep your life and your ministry and your focus on Jesus, fixing your eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so here is Jesus doing what he always does, sharing the truth about the kingdom, opening up the word. There is this demonic disruption, and Jesus deals with the demon with authority because Jesus and demons cannot dwell together. He's the light of the world, and you and I are the light of the world. So as James says, that you submit to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. So Jesus is in control of our lives. We are in his hands. The Holy Spirit, Jesus dwelling in our hearts. And that's what's so neat about being a Christian is that we get to focus on him. And we are under his wings. And he guides us and leads us. And he's our defender. And he's the one that brings us victory and has already brought us victory through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then we get to share the good news and shine the light that comes from us. And as we do that, watch the darkness flee. So the best thing that you and I can do, I believe, is focus on the Lord, walk with the Lord, submit to the Lord, and not just get caught up in overemphasis of demons. Oh yeah, be certain and, and be not ignorant of his devices. Know that they're real. Know that Satan will come against you but you stay close to the Lord. So Jesus here handles it perfectly. He simply spoke the word and demons fled and the people marveled in verse 29. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon, that is Peter and Andrew, with James and John. But Simon's wife mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them. So Jesus and Peter are coming back from the synagogue now. They're coming back from church, if you would. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Now, how oftentimes do we leave, for example, this place, coming to a service, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, maybe leaving a men's study, a ladies' study, and we go back home, and all of a sudden there's all this feverish activity that's going on. There's all these hot problems, distractions, and trials that are taking place. And the reason that I love this story is because Peter has the solution for us. He leaves church, but guess who he took with him? He took Jesus. And that is the key, isn't it, for you and for me? And I want to encourage you that you take Jesus home with you this morning. And some of you, you're going to go home and there is feverish trials and fiery difficulties. You take the Lord with you. That is, you talk about him on the way home in some way. You talk with him when you get home at some time. And you will find that whatever any attempt that the enemy had to undo what you have received this morning,
that his attempts will be in vain. You take Jesus home with you. Don't just leave church here and then the things of God and, and the presence of God, the, the, the desiring to, to draw close to the Lord, is not even a practice or spoken of for the rest of the week until the next time that you go to church. But you take the Lord with you. He does go with you. And you honor the Lord in your home and, and you worship Him there and you study your, the Word of God in your home and the praises of God should be spoken in your home. Don't just leave the Lord here, but take Him home with you. Continue on because when you get home, all of us, we're going to find oftentimes there's some kind of fever or difficulty or challenge that we're facing. And have you ever noticed that after a real special time of, of spending with the Lord here as you gather with God's people, that when you get home, all of a sudden things start falling apart? Tempers are flaring and kids are fighting and things are breaking. Have you ever noticed in trying to get to church sometimes that it can be very, very difficult and everything's falling apart? I know for me, if things become very difficult at home or things are falling apart or all this stress is going on, it's either Wednesday right before I have to leave for Wednesday evening service or Saturday night or something like that or when I need to be somewhere to, to be with God's people. And we need to understand that the enemy doesn't want us to be here. Understand that. And so he'll try to discourage us and, and, and try to keep us at home. But understand this, that we need to continue to be in a place where we receive the word and embrace the Lord and then continue on as you go home. So Jesus goes in, heals Peter's mother-in-law. She arose and ministered to them in verse 32 at evening when the sun had set they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed and the whole city was gathered together at the door and then he healed many who were sick with various diseases cast out many demons he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him so at sundown at sabbath now the people are able to travel and the people begin to bring um, their friends and families and from all the surrounding area, the sick, the demon-possessed people, for Jesus to heal. And Mark tells us the whole city was gathered together about the door. And when you go to Capernaum, and if you go to Israel with us, we always make a stop and spend time in the ruins of Capernaum. You can just picture this, this little village here, and really it is a small village. And it was just, you can picture it packed with people. And all these people that are sick and diseased and demoniacs that are brought to be healed. And, and it's full evening of ministry that's taken place here in Capernaum. And Mark records for us this amazing control Jesus exercised over these demons. And he puts a vocal quarantine upon them. He does not allow them to speak. And, and it interests me because it indicates that Jesus, he didn't want to, to emphasize the spectacular he kept it under control to play down deliverance from demons. And we see that as we go throughout the scriptures. The gospels, it was true for the physical healings as well. On a number of occasions, as we're going to see in just a few verses when we finish the chapter here, that Jesus is going to heal a man who had leprosy. And he tells that man, go and tell no one. Don't tell anybody about this. Just accept your healing and don't spread the word and you are to go to the priest, and you are to get confirmation for your healing, according to Leviticus chapter 14. And you see, it would also be verifying that Messiah was on the scene, because that was, as Isaiah spoke of, 
part of the ministry of the Messiah coming on scene, this, that he would heal the brokenhearted, he would heal those who had leprosy, open the eyes of the blind. And so Leviticus chapter 13 speaks of how it is that the priests were to inspect an individual that perhaps had leprosy. And then chapter 14 speaks of that washing ceremony that they would go through, ritual that they would have when somebody was healed of ministry. And there's no record in the Old Testament of the priests ever practicing that. We know that there was the healing of Naaman, but he was a Gentile. We know that Marian was struck with leprosy and then she was healed. So perhaps that's the only reference to where maybe the priests practiced chapter 14 of Leviticus in affirming healing of leprosy, that, that washing ritual that they would go through and declared to be clean. And when these lepers all of a sudden are showing up in the, at the priests there in Jerusalem being healed of leprosy, the priests are probably scratching their heads going, what is this? We've never seen anything like this for centuries. And we've got to brush up on Leviticus chapter 14. But it was confirmation of their healing, and it was also confirmation that the Messiah was on the scene. But Jesus didn't want this circus mentality that was taking place because of the healings. Because what happened is, as the crowds are gathering, they're only coming to Jesus for physical and material benefits. Matter of fact, we know from the gospel accounts at the feeding of the 5,000, that was kind of the peak of Jesus' ministry. They said, we're going to make you our Messiah, but they were coming for the wrong reasons. He's fed us. He's healed us. We'll never be hungry again. We'll, we'll never be sick again. He'll throw off the yoke of Rome, but Jesus was going to go to the cross to free them from something that had them in greater bondage than any sickness or the bondage that the world can put on you. It was the bondage of sin. He was going to free us from the penalty of sin. That was a greater need. And you see, Jesus focused on the spiritual. He wanted to heal people's hearts and set them free from sin. And he says, come eat of me, drink of me, come in and believe in me. Because I am the bread of life. And I'm the one that when you're thirsty in life, that will give you living waters. And so he didn't want this circus mentality taking place. But unfortunately, it's going to happen as we go through Mark's gospel. And in verse 35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everybody's looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. I want to draw attention back to verse 35. Now in the morning. Now Jesus has just gone through an evening the night before of ministry. People packing in the streets of Capernaum. They're bringing all the sick to be healed. And, and it was, I'm sure, no doubt, a very, very exhausting time for Jesus in ministering. And that's why you see, for example, that Jesus would fall asleep in the boat. He fell asleep because he was exhausted in ministering to the people. He never got tired of ministry, but he did get tired in doing ministry. And so if Jesus had an excuse to sleep in the next morning, this was a good excuse. Hey, I was ministering the night before. I was healing all kinds of people. I'm going to just sleep in this morning and sleep in late and take it easy. And we could understand that. But Jesus here in the morning before daylight, 
You know what is an interesting verse? When you go to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, Isaiah oftentimes speaks of Jesus, it speaks of the Messiah that would come on the scene. And in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, for you note-takers, I think that it speaks of Messiah's devotional life there. It's speaking of Messiah. And we see that Isaiah writes that the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak, a word in season to him who is weary, he awakens me. Again, speaking of Messiah, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as to learn. He's speaking of Messiah that is awakened morning by morning to hear from the Father. And I think that this paragraph that we just read, there's a very important lesson for us to learn as we serve the Lord in ministry, as we desire to live for the Lord. And that is that we are to operate on the same basis as Jesus. Here Jesus gets up early and he goes to a quiet place and he seeks the Father. And Simon and the other disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, everybody's looking for you there in Capernaum. Everybody wants to see you. There's things for you to do. You need to go there. And Jesus is not tempted by what everybody else wants and where to go based on what everybody else thinks that you should go. And I'll tell you the truth on this. You and I, we will be frustrated and we will find ourselves being frazzled if we give in to all the voices that are around us saying, hey, do this and go there and be a part of that. Because what happens is we get pulled in so many different directions. It may be good things. And certainly that, that we know that those things are good. But here's the thing. Eventually you'll go crazy. And you'll burn out if you give in to the voices of what everybody else wants you to do. You cannot go by what the cries of the people say and what they want you to do or think you should do as you serve in ministry. Certainly, you want to be open to the Lord. You want to be flexible, certainly. But if you're open to just everything and give in to all the voices, you're going to end up getting your priorities mixed up and confused. And your ministry will get hard. At the end of Jesus' life, before he went to the cross, he said, Father, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And how did he know what that work was? Morning by morning, day by day, seeking the Father. It would be in the last book of the book of, or the last chapter of the book of Exodus that we see that Moses, it tells us, finished the work. Finished the work concerning building the tabernacle, making sure all the priestly garments were made and all the furnishings. How did he know what he was supposed to do? Because he heard it from the Lord, didn't he? And we know that ministry that Moses had was a very difficult ministry. Two and a half million people. That's the biggest church that I ever heard of. For 40 years he pastored those people. And how did Moses know what to do and where to lead them? Well, we know from Exodus chapter 33 that it was Moses that pitched his tent outside the camp, got to a quiet place, and he would fellowship with the Lord and spend time with the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And Moses knew the importance of cultivating that deep personal relationship with the Lord and hearing from the Lord. And he would receive instructions from the Lord. We know Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 20, he would give some very sound advice to those Ephesian elders. He said, listen, make sure that you take heed to yourself. Not that he's saying you focus on yourself. He says you take care of yourself spiritually. Make sure that you're studying the Word, 
that you're hearing from the Lord, that you're cultivating that deep personal relationship with the Lord, then you can minister to the flock, and that's the key. The Christian life isn't, you know, I'm just going to, to with my might and my determination, I'm just going to do my very best to serve God. But what it is, is moment by moment, day by day, morning by morning, is seeking the Lord and hearing from Him. And just relying on His power and direction as we serve Him and what He's called us to do. And here on this particular day, they were saying to Jesus, go there and go there. Everybody's looking for you. I'm sure there's people to be ministered to. I'm sure there's people to be healed. But Jesus said, I already have instructions. I'm going to go to the next town because that's what my Father wants me to do. It isn't giving in to demanding and, and the calls of all the voices, but the Father is going to lead me and instruct me to do. And that's what you and I are to do as well. You see, Jesus, he said to you and to me that my load is easy my burden is light. People's loads are very heavy and their burdens can be very hard. But what happens is we are sensitive to the leading of the Lord. He will direct you in perfect peace. So Jesus says that I'm going to go to the next town. He was seeking a father and he goes there. And that's what you and I are to do. And so if you don't, if I don't, what will happen is oftentimes we get very confused and frazzled and frustrated. So the answer to that is what we are to do is find a quiet place and you seek the Father early, morning by morning, as you receive your instructions for today. That's what we're to do. In verse 40, now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, saying to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. Leprosy, we know, is a terrible, dreadful disease, not only in Jesus' day, but even today presently. There are some people in parts of the world that they suffer from this very horrible, contagious disease. Matter of fact, this church has been involved with Dr. Song in sending medical supplies to a special hospital in China that deals specifically with those with leprosy. And he's shown me pictures of those who have leprosy there in China and it's a disease that begins to eat away at your skin. It begins to, to eat away at your bone structure. You see, if you had leprosy, it was bad news, particularly back in Jesus' day, because there was no kind of treatment, there was, wasn't any kind of cure, there still really isn't any kind of cure today, but there is some treatment today. And if you had leprosy, you were considered an outcast. Matter of fact, the religious leaders did teach that it was the judgment of God coming upon you. And where did they get that from? As I mentioned to you in the book of Numbers, when Marion, Moses' sister, was stricken with leprosy because she came against Moses. So you were a religious outcast. You were not allowed to go into any of the villages. You weren't allowed to go to the synagogue to worship. You weren't allowed to have contact with anybody except for other lepers. You were living in a colony that was a leper colony that was a tent colony or in caves or whatever it might be. If you were a leper, then you had to wear bells on the hem of your garment when you traveled. And when you walked down the road and you saw somebody else coming towards you, you had to yell, unclean, I'm unclean and run off the road and let that person pass 
It would begin to, to eat at your fingers and your nose would begin to disappear and your toes. And then leprosy would produce sores where all of a sudden they begin to ooze those sores and the, your body began to produce a stench. It was highly contagious as I mentioned. And you see leprosy as we see in Leviticus chapter 13 that speaks of leprosy and how the priests were to inspect the people to see if they had it. There it's a picture of sin because you see sin can be like leprosy. It is leprosy as we see in Leviticus chapter 13. It starts out small, small mark or bump on your skin. It begins to spread very quickly. It begins to then eat away at your skin. And that's the way sin is. Sin can start out very small, a little look here on the computer, watching this TV show that is very carnal. I'm just going to take this substance tonight. It's party time. It's been a hard week. I'll lie just this once. I'm not hurting anyone. But what happens is it begins to spread and destroy and defile and corrupt. Sin, usually it starts out with small beginnings, but if it goes unchecked, how it ends up consuming our lives and eating away at us and eating at our hearts. And that's why the scripture says, as David would say, Lord, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. And so here is this man with leprosy. It's interesting, Dr. Luke in this account, in his gospel, emphasizes that he was full of leprosy. He had a very extreme case of disease. And this man comes to Jesus. He wants to be changed. He needs to be changed. He knows that Jesus is in a certain city, and he implores Jesus. That word means he begged Jesus. He does not want to live another day in this condition. He knows it's going to bring his death and so he cries out to Jesus. This man wanting to be changed, he needed to be changed. And he knows if he's not healed, it's the end of him. How sin has destroyed and corrupted and defiled so many people. And the good news for you and for me as I read this, I see that Jesus had compassion for this man. He didn't say, ooh, get away from me. This man would be ugly and grotesque and stink. And Jesus, he didn't have to reach out and touch this man. He could have just simply spoke. Matter of fact, in the story of the ten lepers, it was the lepers that cried out to Jesus, and Jesus would speak and they were healed. But in this case, this man that implores him comes to him. He, he's given his heart and pouring out his heart and soul to Jesus, says, I know that you're willing cleanse me and Jesus with compassion reaches out and touches him and immediately he's cleansed he's healed if anyone is here this morning sin corrupts and it defiles and it spreads and the only answer to the sin problem is coming to Jesus and knowing that there needs to be a change in your life and that's what I pray that you do. You know that as you experience the guilt and the shame of sin, the effects of sin, the corruption of sin, that you would cry out to Jesus and know this, that he has compassion for you.
to change you and to bring healing to you, to make you a new man, a new woman in Christ. If you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, he is here this morning, and all you have to do is call out to him. And he's compassionate to you. He's the only one that can save you and change you. And the wonderful good news of the gospel is this. As you surrender your life to Jesus Christ because you realize that I have sinned. And this man was full of leprosy. And you might be here today and you might be thinking, you know what? I have sinned so much. The Lord can bring healing to you because he died for you on Calvary's cross. And he shed his blood that we can be washed clean. And then as we surrender our hearts to him in faith to make us a new creation in Christ, you're born again by the Spirit of God. But for you who perhaps that are here and sin has had an effect on your life, you cry out to the Lord. And allow him to continue to bring that healing to you and that comfort and to free you from the power of sin in your life that decays and destroys He's compassionate towards you as well. And if you're here this morning, and maybe some area of life where there's been some kind of defilement that's going on or whatever it is, you allow Jesus to touch you this morning. Bring healing to your heart and comfort. Whatever it might be, because he loves you very much. He looks at this man and he says, I am willing, I am willing And he says the same thing to all of us that are here this morning. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful, incredible story, the compassionate hands of Jesus touching. And, Father, I just pray this morning that if there's anyone that's listening to this message, whether they're here in the sanctuary or out in a coffee shop, if they've never surrendered a heart to Jesus Christ, that they would understand that sin, living apart from Jesus, brings corruption and defilement and will begin to eat away at you. But Jesus is the answer. 